Hi. This conversation includes graphic descriptions of sexual abuse that may be triggering to some listeners. Please take care while listening. This is the companion podcast to episode four of Alan V. Farrow. I'm Amy Ziering. I'm one of the co-directors and one of the co-series creators, and I'm here with Kirby Dick and Amy Hurdy. So we're very happy to be back with you all, and we're going to just talk a bit about episode four and listen to some new clips from some of the interviews that we didn't get to use in the series from Ronan Farrow. We're also going to hear for the first time from Sasha Previn. Sasha is one of Mio Farrow's sons with Andre Previn, who we interviewed and unfortunately did not have room to include in the series. You're also going to hear from another child of Mia, Quincy Farrow. Quincy and Sasha will be weighing in on what Mia was like as a mother. And we're also going to look at something kind of surprising that Amy Hurdy unearthed. As you know, in episode four, we did a lot of looking into the allegations of abuse that came out in the 2010s. Last but not least, we will be speaking with two experts, Joy Silberg, who's a clinical psychologist and president of the Leadership Council on Child Abuse and Interpersonal Violence, and Heather Drevna, who is the vice president of communications for RAIN, that's R-A-I-N-N, and stands for Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network. Now I'm going to break the fourth wall and dive right in and talk with Amy Hurdy about something going on in her life that's very, very strange. Amy, what's going on? It's just crazy every damn day. What can I say? <laughs> but I know, but it's been more crazy than usual because I've been under surveillance. That is so batshit. What do you mean you've been under surveillance? Um, apparently it's a concerted effort um, by people with cameras and they have surveilled me and they've surveilled my son and my no. farm helper. Yes. No. no yes. Okay. So how did you figure this out? And also for listeners, this is, we've worked with you. How long, Amy Hurdy? Oh gosh, 10 years, I guess. Okay, right. And this is the first time. So this is not, a, she's not like a paranoid person and she doesn't imagine <laughs> these things. And like, this has been actually going on for a little while. And at first she was texting us and going, hmm, and sending us these weird pictures and her mailbox had fallen over. And then more recently it got more serious. Do you want to tell us about it, Amy? Well, sure. I mean, we started um, catching people get out of vehicles with cameras trained in my direction. And I've been followed through the grocery store. My son's been followed sitting in the car reading, waiting for a haircut appointment. Um, you know, we've gotten photos of people who are taking pictures of us. So it's annoying. It's intrusive. But I'm really quite boring and I lead a boring life. So I don't think they're able to find the dirt on me that they are probably looking for. Wait, but how, how do you know that this is really happening? Like you actually see them take pictures, they stop, like what? They pull over and park and get out of their vehicle and they point a camera in my direction. Overtly. So this isn't secret. This is not secret. I think it's probably some of it has been secret because I know about the ones that I've actually seen. So yes, it's not all covert. A lot of it's overt. And so I think that's designed to intimidate and harass and it doesn't frighten me. It just annoys me. But I want to be clear. We don't have a single piece of evidence about who is behind it. The last thing before we move on, although I, we could talk to you all day about this, Amy, is you told me this crazy story that you actually noticed people following you in a grocery store. Why would someone do that? I didn't well, understand that. I think what they're trying to do is um, they're trying to get dirt on me, right? Because if they can impugn me, if they can discredit me, then they can discredit my work. And so I think they're probably hoping that um, I'm an alcoholic, that I buy large amounts of, of liquor or whatever, um, you know, paraphernalia to use for drugs. Is she buying a lot of uh, Sudafed? Does she make meth in her barn? Um you know, I don't know, but uh, I, I know that I've been followed through the grocery store on at least two occasions that I was aware of. So, um, you know, good luck. I, I buy a lot of spinach. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it's uh, it's it's pretty freaky, actually. I mean, this sounds like it's a major undertaking. Well, I hope, Amy, I hope this all goes away for you very, very soon. And I'm glad you're as intrepid as you are because I've been really surprised that throughout you've really taken it all just in stride and um, have been pretty calm about the whole thing, even though it's really pretty unnerving. Okay, so now we're going to go back and dive into episode four. What exactly do we learn at the start of the episode about how the investigation ended? Why was Woody actually exonerated? 
what we found was that um, Mako felt that there was probable cause to charge Woody Allen with and to have him arrested. And he did not pursue the charges because of the toll that it would have taken on the victim who was a young child. Yeah, and that's what we learned and that's what we open with um, in episode four. And that kind of was very revelatory, at least to me. And was it to all of you? I mean, I didn't know going into this anything about that. Did did any of you? No, actually, I didn't. I mean, all the media, you know, you so rarely even heard that. I mean, I think it was reported once or twice, but, you know, after it happened, it never got discussed. But probable cause, what does probable cause mean? Probable cause is just that. It means that um, there's probable cause to believe that a crime has been committed. So there's a reasonable basis for believing that a crime has been committed. And the other thing is that there was actually an arrest warrant application drawn up, right? Yes, that was the interesting thing. I didn't realize that there had been an arrest warrant application drawn up with the level of detail that this one had. Say more. Well, that police report is many, many pages and had detailed interviews with everyone, you know, Dylan, her mother, all the eyewitnesses who were there that day. Wow. Um, Exactly. And it also detailed um, the police interview with Woody Allen. Okay, so that's really interesting. I want to now go back and clarify something about the Yale New Haven report that we learned in episode three. What was so interesting about that report is that we were all led to believe, you know, by the way it was talked about in the press, that the report had actually... Had actually cleared him. Right. Somehow, shortly after Mia and Woody were told the results, we discover him on the steps of the Yale New Haven Hospital announcing that these results prove that he was innocent and the claims were baseless, right? Right. I mean, episode three covers the case in detail, but it doesn't stop people on social elsewhere from just repeating these myths about it, as if, you know, this series was never even made. Although I have to say, for the most part, people are actually really blown away by what they learn um, about the Yale New Haven report in episode three, because it provides so much more detailed context, analysis, and information, and it really shifts the way people think about things. Okay, so now back to episode four. After we learn about Mako's decision not to move forward with the criminal trial, we show what happened You know, in the episode, what we do is we look at what happened post-custody trial in Dylan, Woody, and the whole Pharaoh family's lives and sort of compare and contrast their different paths. And we also learned that shortly after Dylan posted her open letter in Nick Kristoff's New York Times blog, there were all of a sudden new allegations, but this time of abuse against Mia. So we first off, I remember we all were like looking at this and we were like, well, the timing of these allegations is a bit surprising. Like, and so we thought, well, we need to go back and see if there was ever any mention of this abuse by Mia earlier. Like, did it show up in the custody trial? And you would think that during the due diligence of that, both parents would have been rigorously investigated, right? So Amy, what did we find when we started looking into that? Well, the records show that the judge did not find that Mia was an abusive parent. And given that it was a custody trial, as you just said, um, you know, the Farrell family was subjected to a very deep and thorough investigative dive, meaning if there had been an issue, it likely would have come up. And the pertinent thing here is that in his closing statement, Judge Wilkes wrote, and this is an exact quote, the evidence at trial established Ms. Farrell is a caring and loving mother, and that he found no evidence that she favored some of her children over others. Wow. And he also went on to say, um, regarding Woody Allen, quote, Mr. Allen's response to Dylan's claim of sexual abuse was an attack upon Ms. Farrow, whose parenting ability and emotional stability he impugned without the support of any significant credible evidence. Oh my gosh. And so I remember we all were really puzzled by these new allegations of Mia being physically abusive because they had never been mentioned in public prior to Dylan's letters publication in 2014. And so we wanted to look into that ourselves. And so we made it a point whenever speaking with any of Mia's children who agreed to speak with us, we made it a point of asking them if they themselves had ever experienced or witnessed any type of physical abuse of this kind um, to see if we could find any kind of corroboration for these allegations. 
So I want to play for you both. Um, this is what, remember, when we interviewed Sasha Previn, who unfortunately we couldn't, didn't have the space to include in the series, but she, he did a really amazing interview. And here's what Sasha told us um, about what Mia was like as a parent. And Amy, do you want to explain uh, who Sasha is exactly? Sasha was one of Mia's sons with Andre Previn, and um, he was one of the twins. Right. And he was very reticent to speak with us for a long time and finally decided to. And so I'm really glad that we get to hear a little bit of him now in this clip. So as I said in this clip, I asked Sasha how he feels about his mom and if he witnessed anything awful while he was growing up. What are some of your favorite things about your mom? Loving. I don't know if it's appropriate. What kind, generous, of course. There for us. Um, listens to us. How was she with the children that needed extra help? What kind of things did she do for them? I know a lot of your siblings had, mm -hmm. had severe challenges. What, what, how, how, how did Mia attend to that? Whatever it took to accommodate it, whether it be the doctors or surgery for someone, whatever, she would get what was needed for them. So, yeah. You know, a lot has been said about Mia having sort of a, a temper or committing violent acts towards children. Did you, did you see that? Any violence? Yeah. No, of course not. No. I mean, nothing worse than raising your voice a little bit, but who doesn't do that? So no. Mm -mm. So she, you know, there was something about dragging people or hitting them or mm -mm. not true? Not that I saw, not that I experienced, no, absolutely not. Well, I just think it's interesting to note that in your interview, you pressed him to see if he had anything negative to say about Mia or um, the way she treated any of the children or, um, you know, any pressure that she was putting on the children to not tell the truth, and, and he pushed back. I also now want to play for you both some clips from our interview we did with Quincy Farrow. Quincy is the youngest of Mia's children. She's the daughter in episode four who talks about how they just never, ever spoke about Woody. In fact, she refers to him as Voldemort, um, he who will not be named. So here's what we heard from Quincy when we asked her about her mom and if she had in fact witnessed any abusive acts by Mia. But in this first clip, it's towards the start of our interview and I just ask Quincy to describe what her childhood was like. How would you characterize the atmosphere in the farmhouse? Um, chaotic and happy. Um, definitely like a scholarly, a scholarly feel to it because my mom was not about TV, so we didn't have a TV. At home, we had movies um, that she would like, okay, and we would watch them and they were all like the classics, like, you know, David Copperfield and, you know, movies that one should watch. Um, and so we would read a lot. My mom was, would always buy us books. And so we were always, there's always somewhere, someone curled up somewhere reading a book or, you know, talking about the theory of something. Or I remember Ronan walking around in the hallways at night reciting old English because he's learning old English and thinking that the house was haunted, but it was just him practicing. And so there was a lot of, a lot of value and emphasis placed on books and, and knowledge and learning and reading and writing. You know, a lot of horrible things have been said about her. Was she, did you ever see her have any kind of, you know, malicious behavior towards any of her children growing up in the house? No. Um, I mean, nothing that like a regular parent, you know, like, timeouts are grounded like I mean kids can do some pretty you know like stuff that that needs to get grounded you know but never anything physical never anything verbally like abusive never swearing at us or hitting us or nothing like that never okay so back to your experience of your mom eight children in the house did she ever drag anyone down the stairs by their hair no lock anyone in a closet? No. Are there even locks on your closets? No. No, there's not. <laughs> yeah, you couldn't be locked in. I mean, maybe if you like tied it with string, but there's no locks on our closets. A shed outside that someone was left in or? No. I mean, we have like a thunder shack that my mom built um, 
has like lightning rods and it's all fenced in so that we could all go out and like listen to thunderstorms together, but it has no lock again. And it, it was rarely, it, honestly, rarely used. <laughs> it's more of a thought, <laughs> but no, nothing, nothing ever. Um, poisoned your mind with bitter thoughts about Woody Allen. No, as I said, I honestly had never had a conversation with her about Woody until M Moses's piece. That was the first conversation and that was not very long ago. My mom never ever treated us in a way that, that was abusive or was degrading or anything of the sort. My mom was the, my mom was the kind of mom that spent four hours trying to figure out how, how to do African-American hair and making it look beautiful because she cared. My mom is, is not that type of person. At all. I bet she's been portrayed at all. It's not true at all, which is why it was very hard for me to come to come and do this because I, I'm, I don't like to be in the public, but my mom is, is, too, is too important for me to just to stay quiet. So yeah, we really, really tried to find if there was anything in the past that tracked with these claims, like were there physicians, therapists, teacher reports, eyewitnesses, anything or anyone who could corroborate these allegations. And I remember in the interview we did with Fletcher, who's Mia's son with Andre Previn, who we all first meet in episode one of the series, Fletcher told us in that interview that he shared a bedroom growing up with Moses. So they were roommates throughout childhood. And so I said, Fletcher, did you see anything? Did he ever cry? Did he ever confide in you? And he said, absolutely nothing. No, no, no. And we were close. And what was interesting is also that Moses' ex-wife, Kim, told us that Dylan was a bridesmaid at her and Moses' wedding with Mia in attendance. And that they all had Thanksgiving together at Mia's house. And we saw many, many photographs where everyone's happy and smiling for several decades uh, post the custody trial. So we really tried and we couldn't find anything. And as I said, with the allegations of Sunyi, we did the same thing. And we asked the siblings and no one could corroborate or track it back to her ever saying anything of the kind prior to Dylan's letter getting published. Right, Amy? No, no sooner than that. And the surprising thing that you did find, Amy H., <laughs> that I alluded to in our intro was that you found allegations of physical abuse by Woody Allen in both the police and court records. And I remember you learning about those, Amy, and pointing them out to us right after you'd gone through the police files and like thoroughly examined the court records. Yes. Well, we found a case where he was accused of shoving Dylan's face into her dinner plate. And Dylan spoke to us about that when we interviewed her. That's actually in the series. And we found another account that's both in the police report and in the court records where Woody Allen is said to have twisted the leg of Satchel, who is now Ronan, um, where he twisted Satchel's leg and threatened to break it. And in fact, at the custody trial, Judge Wilkes actually quoted Mia's testimony about this incident in his summary verdict. I remember we looked at that. How did Woody describe that same incident? Well, when he was asked in the custody trial about it, he said, quote, that is absolutely 100% untrue. Okay, so just to refresh everyone's memories, as we report in episode three, how did Wilkes ultimately rule? Like who ended up getting custody? Well, Mia. Mia won full custody. Wilkes ruled that Woody Allen couldn't visit Dylan for at least six months and that he also could see Satchel, but it had to be supervised visitation. Mm. And what did Judge Wilkes in his decision write like his reasoning was for this? Yeah, he wrote a, a long paragraph talking about why he was so concerned about Mr. Allen having unsupervised visitations with Dylan. And a couple of lines are really interesting. He said, I believe Mr. Allen will use Satchel in an attempt to gain information about Dylan and to insinuate himself into her good graces. I believe Mr. Allen will, if unsupervised, attempt to turn Satchel against the other members of the family. So in closing, Wilkes wrote, I believe Mr. Allen to be so self-absorbed, untrustworthy, and insensitive that he should not be permitted to see Satchel without appropriate professional supervision until Mr. Allen demonstrates that supervision is no longer necessary. So I think it's pretty apparent that uh, Wilkes seemed very wary of giving Woody Allen unsupervised visitation with Dylan. All right, so speaking of Ronan, I now wanna play two clips from the interview we did 
with Ronan um, for the series. Uh, one is about the attic train set, which as you recall, we discuss at length in episode four. And so here's a clip from Ronan Farrow talking about his memories of what was in the attic. Tell me about the attic. What do you remember? What are your memories of what was in the attic? The attic I remember vividly and clearly. Uh, this was a space that was big enough for Dylan and I to play in. We played in it a lot. There were a bunch of suitcases that we would sort of hide in and we would joke about, you know, scary stories of getting locked into a suitcase. Um, there was a train set in there. We would do a lot of our kind of hanging out and inventing a magic kingdom of little pewter figurines in there. Um, this was a space that you could play in and be in for a sustained period of time. And there was room for a full train set. Yeah, there was a train set in there. Is that I remember very vividly, and the fact that that's ever been disputed in the public narrative is an ex post facto thing that does not accord with my memories. I mean, how many people did we ask about this train set, Amy and Kirby? Well, we found the train mentioned in at least seven of the interviews that Dylan did with investigators at the time. And in addition to that, Ronan, when we spoke to him, who else? Mia remembered a train set. Dylan Obviously, as an adult, also retrospectively said there was a train set. And of course, uh, there were three detectives at the time of the investigation in 1992 who actually saw the train set in the attic. And uh, one of them did a, a detailed drawing of the train set. So many people have actually seen that train set over the years. So then... There's this other part of the interview that I want to play for you both because it was really honestly jaw drop moment for me in the interview we did with him. So here's a little bit more from Ronan's interview. I was very astonished by what he said. So here we go. Here's Ronan describing an exchange he had once with Woody. He and I exchanged letters at that point in time where he made it clear that he did not want to help me with that unless I supported him publicly. Help you with what? He did, he said that. <clears throat> I'll So I'll tell the story clearly. Woody Allen would continue over the course of my adult life to reach out to Dylan. And this would prompt terror from her. She would call me upset. She would say, you know, I got a box of letters saying, you know, I'll always be there for you with pictures of the two of them. She was considering getting a restraining order. This was a horrifying thing for her. And very often he would match those letters with letters to me which would also have the same sentiment of, you know, I'll always be there. And at one point, I remember, you know, I started college very young. My mom was a single mom struggling to make ends meet. It's hard out there as an actress of a certain age when you've got 14 kids. And I remember saying, well, if that's a practical offer, do you ever want to help subsidize any of my education? And he wrote back very clearly, if you're not going to publicly support me, I have no interest in helping with your education. And my interpretation of that was very clearly that the offer always stood that if I were willing to publicly smear my mom and assist in this PR campaign against my sister and her, that the offer stood to have a whole lot more support than I had. I had no idea that that was coming. I mean, I, I never know what's coming when I interview someone, but I somewhat anticipated he would say something more along the lines of, you know, my life was hard. That was horrible. I'm sad. But never did I think we would hear that if I renounced my mom, I would have a much easier life. But we heard some of that, didn't we, on one of the audio recordings between Woody Allen and Mia Farrow. So oh, that's right. to me, it's not entirely shocking because we heard a precursor of that. It was in the series itself where Woody Allen said, um, if, you, if you join me and uh, renounce the photos, basically, then possibly we could get back together. Okay, we're going to stop now. This, I'm going to say goodbye. Kirby's got to run. Everyone's always interested in the Kirby's got to run. My kids are always like, where's he going? It's COVID. <laughs> but anyways, Kirby, thank you. And go run wherever you're running to. Maybe you, you not... should be surveilled. <laughs> what are you doing, Kirby? We're going to say goodbye also to Amy Hurdy. She's actually got to leave too, unfortunately. So I'm going to stick around though and speak right now with Dr. Joy Silberg, a forensic psychologist who specializes in child sexual abuse and the treatment of the results of trauma on children. Joy also runs a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping victims of interpersonal violence and children. Hi, Joyce. Thanks for joining us. I'm so oh, happy yeah. to talk with you. Congratulations to you on such a, a wonderful presentation that you did. 
the Alan V. Farrow really touched the hearts of so many survivors and provided information that simply isn't out there in that format or in a way that people can really access it. I've gotten lots and lots of comments from people, but the one that I liked the best was uh, from a woman who went through similar things to what Mia Farrow went through. And she told me she thought she would never see the day where her own story was gonna be presented uh, in a show so clearly and so accurately. And she said, now I don't have to try to explain it to people. I can just tell them to watch the documentary. She said, and by watching Mia Farrow be interviewed, she said she actually now has words that she didn't have to describe her own experiences where she felt the words weren't there. And then she heard them articulated by someone else. And she said, yes, yes, that's exactly what I was feeling. So she felt so validated and, con and confirmed and understood. And of course, the pain returned, but the pain returned in a way that helped her feel there was a community that was supporting her. Wow. People have been really shocked and surprised by this. For many, it's the first time they're hearing about, in quotations, parental alienation syndrome, and now in quotation also parental alienation. Can you explain exactly what that is for those who listening? Well, sure. So it came on the scene in the uh, somewhere in the 90s, maybe the late 80s. Richard Gardner, who was at the time kind of a well known child and adolescent psychiatrist, came up with a theory that when you have these really difficult divorces and there's a parent, particularly a mother, who's alleging that a child was abused by the father, that it is likely just a symptom of the nasty divorce. And it is likely, more likely than not, that the mother has made this happen as a way to alienate her child from the father in order to get back at him. And it just took off with lightning speed. When he went around testifying about that, it was a very easy thing for the judges to come up with the answer. If they have a choice, is this nice looking, well-dressed guy in a suit, a perverted child abuser, or is this mother a little bit hysterical and I see her sitting there crying, which is inappropriate to do in court? Well, I have a choice. Which one? Oh, well, rather than call him a child molester, which is going to force me to have to think about legal charges, all I have to do is to say this mom is a bit hysterical, which we can all see. And why wouldn't she make up allegations? So it was just a much easier solution for judges. And what Richard Gardner found was that all he had to do was explain it. And it was just really easy. I want to say what we discovered, you know, from talking to experts like you and doing our own research is that there was, it was not evidence-based. It was not, there were no studies. He just came up with this theory from from nothing, right? From nothing. He came up with it from nothing. And he came up with these um, signs and symptoms, which can tell you that it is uh, parental alienation. And the signs and symptoms are so ridiculous because some of them are clear-cut signs of child abuse. Sometimes I do the following as a little demonstration of what's wrong with the theory. I say, well, imagine that you have a really bad headache and you're going to see a neurologist. And the neurologist says, oh, I know exactly what you have. You have headache delusional disorder. And the person says, what's that? And the neurologist says, oh, that's when you really, really, really think you have a headache, but you actually don't have a headache. And the person says, well, that's totally ridiculous. That's crazy. And then the neurologist goes, aha. Symptom number one of the disorder, extreme protest and anger against the provider of help. And then the person says, that's totally ridiculous. I'm going to go get a second opinion. Doctor shopping. Number two symptom of the disorder is doctor shopping. Clearly you have that. So the more the person protests, the more they evidence these supposed symptoms of the disorder. There's actually a name for that kind of fallacy. It's a particular kind of logical fallacy where you're creating by yourself the symptoms, which you then diagnose as the disorder. So it's um, unfortunately, that's what we see in case after case after case, where part of the diagnostic criteria 
are the parents' perfectly logical reaction to being completely disbelieved. Or for example, the child's um, insistence that they're right and that nobody else told them to say that. Their complete stubborn insistence that they're right. That's another symptom of parental alienation. So basically whatever anybody would do to protest the truth is then being taken as a symptom of the disorder. So it's really a very, very backwards logic. It's like a gaslighting thing. It's really strange. It's like whatever you do, they, they pivot and incorporate only to prove their thesis. If you had a legitimate complaint, they torque it so that however you present that is evidence of the opposite of an exactly, illegitimate complaint. Exactly. And then it's ingenious and it's really perverse. And on the other side is that let's say what the let's say it's a mother who's trying to protect her child then learns over time not to share too much, not to say too much, not to give too much information, then that also is perceived as another diagnostic indicator. Oh my God. The mother so you is, can't win. You no, can't you can't win. win. So the mother was too hesitant. The mother uh, wouldn't share. She was evasive. Uh, she looked away. She didn't like answering direct questions. And then we have these mothers who figure the best thing is document, document, document. So they write down everything the child says. They write down, and they're often told by mental health professionals, write it down, record it, make sure you have all the details. And then they're labeled obsessive compulsive, overly uh, concerned, obsessed. Did you just say you can't win? That would be exactly right. So it, it really almost doesn't matter what behavior the mother evidence is. All of it is then interpreted within a pathological light. All of it is, is symptomatic of the child must not be telling the truth and the mother must be making it up or coaching it or creating this for the purposes of court. Another thing, for example, that's on the list is that all of the families join together in the fight. Well, of course, like if I had, God forbid, an abused child or an abused grandchild, I would want my whole family to join together in the fight to help me. And I've met the most wonderful grandparents around the world who have been supporting the legal cases of their so that they can save their grandchildren, why not? Uh, some of them have cashed out their entire retirements to put it in the legal arena so that they can save their grandchildren. So the idea that if your family rallies around you, that's another pathological sign that you're spreading your warped ideas to other people. There's just nothing normal that you can do that won't illustrate the opposite. So then, and what we learned also is that in fact, it's very rare for children to make this up right? It's pretty rare. Yeah. Children do not tend, young children clearly do not make up child sexual abuse. Even though it's pretty infrequent for a child to make this up, it's not so infrequent for courts to think children are making this up because yes. of parental alienation. Is that correct? Exactly. I remember it was actually in Hawaii. I was giving a presentation to judges on this phenomenon and a judge raised his hand and he said, wait, wait, Dr. Silberg, are you saying that it's more common to be sexually abused than to say you're sexually abused and it be false? I said, yes, so much more common that the numbers are not even comparable because one in four girls, as they get older, claim that they have had an experience of sexual abuse, which could be inside the family or outside the family, one in six boys. And yet it's 0.1 of the population of uh, false allegations, according to statistics that, are, that our government uh, takes as part of collecting information from Child Protective Services. You said that it's very negligible that a child is not telling the truth. And yet in courts, it's more often than not that people believe that a mother has manipulated the child to tell this. That's sort of the legacy of Gardner's mythological theory. Is that correct? That, that is horrifying. The legacy is that, is that either the mother has made the child say it or inadvertently given the child messages so the child thinks they're supposed to say it, but not that the child experienced it. And that's more commonly believed. Yes. Complete inversion of reality. Complete inversion of reality. With the consequence of what? Of the children very frequently being placed into the unsupervised custodial care of a parent who is an abuser, meaning that they probably will get abused again. That's so horrifying. So what do we need in closing? What do we need to do to change this? 
Well, we need education for court personnel, including the judges and all of the players in court to understand what the signs and the symptoms are of child sexual abuse and its prevalence. You need to have a understanding of the misuses of parental alienation syndrome and its lack of scientific basis. You need the public to become aware so that they can protest in the ways that public's, the public does. You can send complaints against personnel that have been unethical in various ways. And we just need to improve in all domains and in all professions. I just wanna say concisely, if possible, that parental alienation is a defense strategy for a parent accused of harming their child to push the crime onto the other person. It's your fault, not my fault. It's your fault. You made it up. You're the one who's at fault for this. Wow. Okay. Well, thank you, Joy. Thanks for fitting us in. I know you're super busy. Um, thank you for doing the work you do. So appreciative. And thank you for appearing in Alan V. Farrow. This is the Joy Silberg who's on the screen in episodes three and four. So glad we got a chance to talk with you more today. Well, thank you. And thank you for including me. So joining us now is Heather Drevna. Heather's the Vice President of Communications at RAIN. Hi, Amy. Thank you so much for having me on. So I know that someone anecdotally told me that calls to RAIN went up every Sunday night when the series was premiering. Is that, is that true? It is. After, in the 24 hours after each of the four episodes aired, we looked and we saw about a 20% increase in calls to the hotline over that period. What do you attribute that to? You know, the entertainment media can play a really powerful role in encouraging survivors to seek support um, and influencing how the entire issue of sexual violence is perceived. I think in episode four, especially seeing where Dylan is now, um, seeing that there is hope for survivors was very motivating for people to feel like maybe they could also reach out for help and get the support that they need and deserve. We see similar spikes anytime sexual violence is at the forefront of the news. Um, so for example, I think our highest hotline day in history was the day that Dr. Christine Blasey Ford uh, testified in the Senate hearing for Judge Kavanaugh. Wow, really? Yeah, these, these events have a huge impact on folks and the sharing of the hotline number through entertainment media is especially important. We've seen spikes like this uh, with other programs, um, but also the online dissemination of that information when this topic is so in the news are incredibly helpful. So having partners like HBO share the information while the series was airing was incredibly helpful um, to emphasize and to really uh, help to spread what we were doing and help spreading what is available to folks out there. Um, we also saw Dylan share the information herself and point people to the National Sexual Assault Hotline, which was incredibly helpful because many people might not be familiar with the hotline and with the services available, but might have started following Dylan because of the story and were able to get help because of that. Wow, that's pretty amazing. Why is incest something people are so reluctant to talk about? That's a great question. Sexual violence itself is such a difficult subject for people to talk about. We see many survivors may never talk about their experiences, but incest brings an additional hurdle for many survivors because you're talking about a family member and the fear of disrupting the family, of being the one who brings that disruption to their family by speaking out, even though they're not the one who has caused this issue in their family in any way, but that fear of being the disruptor can be very real and very inhibiting. Can you say more about that? Absolutely. You know, coming forward can set off a bomb in the family, uh, particularly if other family members aren't supportive of the survivor or don't indicate that they believe the survivor or take action to support them. But no matter what happens, that allegation is then out there and those family dynamics are going to be impacted. And you know, for many, especially for younger survivors, they may be afraid of getting in trouble themselves. Yeah. Um, you know, they might not fully comprehend that 
they were not responsible for the abuse that they experienced and feel that in some way they were responsible and that they might get in trouble for that. Oh, so that's another reason. So a child who's being abused might not want to speak is that they then think that they themselves did something wrong, right? They don't actually know what the rules of society are yet. So there's a lot, there could be a lot of misperceived self-blame. Sure. There are so many factors depending on the age and the experience of the victim. And one of the things that we know about people who, who prey on younger victims, especially, is that typically they're grooming these victims. Um, you know, they are establishing these relationships well ahead of time. You know, grooming is a set of manipulative behaviors that the perpetrator uses to gain the trust of the victim and to gain access to the victim before even perpetrating the abuse. What is the most common misconception about incest we have in our society? I think the most common misconception is that it's an isolated incident. I think people think incest must be only a certain type of person in a corner you know, it's, it's everywhere. Child sexual abuse is everywhere. We know that every nine minutes, a case is referred to child protective services in, in this country. It is so pervasive and nine out of 10 children know the person who has abused them. And that's a trusted person in their life. Um, about a third of those people are family members. Oh my gosh. Nine out of 10 children abused know their abuser and a third of that are family members. Is that what you just said? Those are the, the best statistics that we have from the Department of Justice. Those are older statistics though. Um, unfortunately, so much of sexual violence is a mystery because it's such an underreported crime. And we know that, um, you know, as it's more difficult for victims to speak up that leaves a vacuum of information into assessing really how deep the problem goes, especially when it comes to younger victims. So in what ways are children uniquely vulnerable then to these kind of crimes? That is a great question. You know, children are still developing their brains are still developing their social skills are still developing. They, are still learning what relationships look like, what's appropriate and what's inappropriate. Uh, they're also still developing their language. They might not necessarily have the language to tell someone about what is happening to them, um, particularly depending on their age. They're also dependent in many cases on adults and sometimes on the perpetrator. So all of this makes them much more vulnerable to, to being abused. What's the most heartbreaking thing for you about this work? The stories about children. Um, you know, we, we hear stories of, of horrendous sexual violence every day, but hearing the stories of what children endure at the hands of people who are gonna get a little emotional about it, at the hands of people who are supposed to be protecting them. That's really, I, I think the, the most difficult thing about this work. Yeah, it must be so hard to hear those stories, Heather. You know, as, as a mother myself, I, I have a 12-year-old son and I, I can't imagine the horror of something like this happening to him um, or any of his friends or any children like him. Um, but I, I think that's very hard for, for most parents to, to think about. What impact do these crimes have on children in their in their, how they sort of live the rest of their lives? What what kind of symptoms do you see play out? So, because this is happening at such a critical time for children in their development, it can definitely have deep and lasting effects in terms of depression or anxiety and post traumatic stress syndrome, and can affect their relationships going forward. I think for behavioral signs that we tend to see in children who've experienced sexual trauma, the things for people to look out for are things like keeping secrets 
or not talking as much as usual, not wanting to be left alone with certain people or being afraid to be away from their primary caregivers, especially if that's a new behavior. Frequently, regressive behaviors will occur depending on where they are in their developmental stage. You know, so resuming behaviors that they'd grown out of, like thumb sucking or, or bedwetting. Some children become overly compliant. Others become openly defiant. Likewise, healing is very unique uh, for everyone. There's no one size fits all prescription for healing from sexual trauma. Uh, there's also not a linear path. You know, for many people, it's one step forward and two steps back, and you just keep going and trying new things. Um, at the National Sexual Assault Hotline, that's one of the things that our support specialists are there to help talk people through of, you know, what strategies might work for them, where might they want to start if something hasn't worked for them, what might an alternative be. Um, and it's one reason that that service can be so valuable for survivors who are hoping to to find a path and, and maybe feeling blocked. What to anyone listening um, who might be looking for help, what do you suggest they do, Heather? First and foremost, um, to anyone listening, going through something like this, know that you're not alone. You can call the National Sexual Assault Hotline anytime, 24 seven, 365 to be connected with free confidential one-on-one -on -one support. We don't log IP addresses or save chat transcripts, uh, nor do we hold on to telephone information. This is completely confidential. It's available via both telephone at 800-656-HOPE, which is 4673, or online chat at RAIN with two N's, R-A-I-N-N.org. Um, we've seen the online chat option is especially popular with younger survivors who are coming. Um, it works just like text messaging, um, although it's on the computer, not a, an SMS message. Uh, where you can you know, talk one-on-one -on -one with a support specialist. Everything is trauma-informed and survivor-led. There are no scripts. This is a live one-on-one -on -one conversation and the support specialist can walk you through anything that you wanna talk about uh, to help set you on, on the path to healing. What do you want to tell someone who thinks their child might be struggling with this? To parents or caregivers who are concerned about a child and their lives, I would encourage them to contact the National Sexual Assault Hotline. Um, you might think that the hotline is just for survivors, but we're there for family and friends as well. Our support specialists can walk you through how to approach that child and how to have that conversation uh, if you're looking for, for tips and strategies. But I think the most important message is to talk with them, check in with them, let them know that no matter what, you're there and you believe them and you are there to support them. Yeah, just anecdotally and talking to trauma survivors that they say that having someone who believed them, who they could confide in, like, was such a game changer in so many ways. I think people don't realize that's just the act of listening is so helpful, you know. <laughs> and you don't um, have to have the answers. Right. Um, that's it, li exactly, listening is so important and listening without judgment, uh, just so that they know you're, you're there for them is really, really key. We hear from so many survivors that the experience of telling someone for the first time has a profound effect on them and on their ability to, to move forward in their healing journey. If that first disclosure goes wrong, if they're, if they're, or goes badly, if they're met with skepticism or disbelief, or even if they're met with a well-meaning person who starts asking them 50,000 questions and telling them what they should do, that can, can cause them to, to clam up again um, versus you know, being met with empathy and unconditional support. Just hearing those words, I believe you and I'm here for you can mean so much. Wow. Well, thank you, Heather, so much for sharing your wisdom and your empathy for your compassion and for your listening and holding the space for survivors in the way you do. I know that's probably incredibly draining and taxing work, and I'm, I'm grateful to you for doing it. And thank you for talking with us today. 
Well, Amy, thank you so much for, for having me on and thank you for the work that you all have done to bring light to the subject. Um, as you heard, media has such a strong impact on awareness and on getting people connected with support and we're very grateful for the exposure. For anyone listening who needs support, again, the National Sexual Assault Hotline is available at 800-656-HOPE or at rain.org. So thank you. This is the last episode of our podcast. Uh, I want to thank everyone so much for watching the series and for listening to the podcast. We hope you feel like you've learned something and that this knowledge can inform your life and actions moving forward and, and that of those around you. If you like this podcast, please do recommend it to others. I also want to especially thank the people who made this podcast possible. Kat Dwin and Ryan Maisie are two amazing podcast producers who worked long hours, um, just are incredible, and um, just jumped in to make this happen. I want to thank Trey Booty, our amazing sound editing wizard, Callie Bagby, who helped with fact-checking and research, Michael Gluckstadt and Grant Rutter from HBO's podcast production team. They were phenomenal. HBO series execs Sarah Rodriguez for her oversight at all hours. And a huge thanks to our series producer, Jamie Rogers, our amazing editors, Michaela Schur, Parker Laramie, and Sarah Newins, stunning cinematographers, Thorsten Tilo, Thad Wadley, and Moira Morrill, and the incomparable composer, Michael Abels, whose score you've been listening to throughout. Oh. And our amazing associate producer, Ruth Mirai, and assistant editors, Veronica Stack, Emma Quinn, and Rachel Hoppel, and co-producer extraordinaire, Ryan Maisie of the series as well. Thank you all so much for listening. Woody Allen denies ever having been sexually inappropriate or abusive with Dylan. Woody Allen's therapist claims his behavior wasn't sexual as well. Woody Allen and Suni Previn were approached in December of 2020, and each was given two weeks to confirm interest in participating in an interview to address the allegations in this series. Their representative confirmed that the request was received, yet it was never responded to.